Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend as we gather together in the Lord's house, marking the 14th Sunday after Pentecost, we will read the Old Testament text from Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 11 to 24, the epistle text from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now it could be optionally to add on verses 5 through 11, uh, but the regular text will be verses 12 through 17, and then the gospel reading from Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 10. So as we get started with the Ezekiel 34 reading, verses 11 to 24, for a little context here, Ezekiel was a priest in the land of Judah, so serving the temple in Jerusalem or at least he was scheduled to be a priest. The book of Ezekiel in chapter 1 starts with the idea, basically, that Ezekiel has reached the age of 30, which would be when his time of service in the temple as a priest would have begun. But instead, what ends up occurring is that he is taken away into exile. Ezekiel taken away with the first wave of exiles into Babylon. Judah and Jerusalem will be destroyed six years later in 587, so 593 here. And in Babylon, then, there's not really a priestly role to be fulfilled, but instead, the Lord chooses to turn him into a prophet, to use Ezekiel as his spokesperson to his people in exile. Now, for the context of the book, or the structure of the book, I should say then, uh, chapters 1 through 24 are God's judgment against his own people, so Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. Chapters 25 to 32, a briefer section, gives you God's judgment against all the nations. And then chapters 33 to 48 will give you the picture of restoration. So, judgment first two-thirds of the book, the final third of the book, it ends with a lot of different conversations, prophecies of restoration of his people. We're in chapter 34, so we're in that restoration section with this text. If you're looking at the outline in the Lutheran Study Bible, it says of chapter 34, Yahweh will save his sheep through his messianic shepherd. So, let's look at this text. We're going to do We've got three paragraphs here, so verses 11 through 16 to get us started. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
I'm just going to start with this. Notice who the doer is of all the verbs. We've got, I'm counting 18, 18 subjects. 16 of them are God. It means the people are just two. Who is the doer of the verbs? This fits very well with our conversation about our own salvation. So this is restoration for the, that Old Testament people. It's going to push to that future picture of salvation as well, ultimately. But it fits right in. We don't do this for ourselves. We don't save ourselves. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses. God does the work. And so what we see of the people, which is just twice, and it's in verse 14. It's a reception. Almost passive, but not quite. So you see verse 14 again, I will feed them with good pasture. So God is active in feeding us. There they shall lie down. There they shall feed. They are receiving the gifts that God has given. He has given them back the promised land. He has given them food to eat. And so they receive it, they rejoice, and they simply enjoy it. They live in that gift that has been given to them. Again, they did not restore themselves. They did not bring themselves back. The Lord has done this thing for them. And it, it's just the same for us in the church today. We could not save ourselves from our sin. But Christ has. He has redeemed us from sin, death, and the devil, rescued us, brought us back. He has made us a new creation. And now, having received his gifts, we live in them. We enjoy them. We rejoice in them day after day. Every day is a new gift that he gives. Daily bread, as we think of the Lord's Prayer, as he provides for our needs. And we receive his word and sacrament as we gather together in his church. I would pair that here with the lying down in good grazing land. Right? When you go to a faithful congregation where you can hear his word proclaimed and you can receive Christ's body and blood given for you. It's not active. Well, we might say so, right? I got up in the morning. I got ready for church. I went to church. Like Those, those are active verbs, yes. But again, we're just receiving the Lord has already put us there. He's made us part of his church. And now we're, we're receiving the gifts rather than wandering away. We're receiving the gifts rather than rejecting them. All right, so let's take a closer look at some of these, these things in this paragraph. So first, we start really emphatically, I, I myself. Could have just been, I will search for my sheep. It's threefold. You've got the double pronoun I and then the reflexive pronoun myself. Three times over he's going to search. This does pair with the gospel reading, by the way, from Luke chapter 15 as we look at the parable of the lost sheep. We were lost. Jesus comes to find us. God's people were lost. He went to find them. That's your parallel. That's your connection. Uh, not too tricky to find this week. Sometimes it's really difficult to see the connection between the three readings uh, for the lectionary, but not today. So he's going to search for his sheep. He's going to seek them out. 
And this is what he does as he goes to them and restores them and redeems them. It's not much of a search. It's not like the Lord didn't know where they are, but he went to them. Again, he redeemed them. So as a shepherd would seek out his flock if they've been scattered, so you think of sheep that flee from some kind of a danger or just from wandering. So he seeks out his sheep. And again, that's going to be the Luke text as well, the shepherd who seeks out his lost sheep. I will rescue them from all the places they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I don't know if sheep are afraid of clouds and thick darkness, but this in the text is a reference to judgment. Here it would be good to connect back to the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. So here's Isaiah 8, verse 22. They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The idea of, of judgment scattering. Isaiah 60, verse 2. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And Jeremiah th- chapter 2, verse 31 And you, O generation, behold the word of Yahweh. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free? We will come no more to you. Joel chapter 2 verse 2 describes the last day as a day of thick darkness. So we think of judgment day. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 15 is going to speak very similarly to that. So judgment is our picture, and the scattering of the Israelites and the Judaites was judgment as they had rebelled against God, rejected him, and he led them into exile. Now that would include the land of Assyria and Babylon, but also others. When Assyria and Babylon's armies came crashing down, not every person was captured and and while in the Assyrian case had a fish hook put into their nose and attached to chains and carried off to another land. There were some who fled trying to escape. We know that some of the Jews, for example, in the destruction of Jerusalem, some of the Jews make it down to Egypt, including the prophet Jeremiah, who will remain among that people until they get sick of hearing God's word and kill him for it. But God will redeem. God will restore. He's going to bring them out from those other lands. He's going to bring them back to their own land, which is a reference to the promised land, a return to Israel, a return to Judah, a rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, because there he's then going to feed them. And let's take that both ways. Let's take that as the feeding of daily bread, but also as as Jesus calls it in his conversation with Mary and Martha in Luke 10, the one thing needful as he feeds them not only with earthly things to provide for the body, but he feeds them with his very own self, that he would dwell in their midst, that he would be their God, that he would grant them forgiveness and mercy. And eventually, as the text will continue here by the end, he will send them the the Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's going to feed them on good pasture, the mountain heights of Israel, Not much to say about the mountain heights here for me. I simply point out that it was a mountainous area and that Jerusalem especially was built on the highest mountain around. And so this is the point here. They're being brought back to their own land. There are lots of connections in this text to Psalm 23. So that 
It would make sense to see Psalm 23 as a possible reading in church this weekend for some congregations to, to bring out that connection. But I, I guess you would hear it, right? I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It's only a six-verse psalm. Go ahead and finish it. Read it for yourself. So God provides. God cares for, protects. The protection part's coming. He's going to shepherd them. He's going to guide them, lead them, protect them, feed them, so forth. Make them lie down. Uh, probably here the idea of giving them rest from their enemies. Again, the return from exile and the opportunity to just be his people. He will seek the lost, bring back the strayed. Those go hand in hand. Those who have wandered off, God has redeemed, restored, and that's what we're seeing with this whole text. Binding up the injured. That's something a shepherd would do for his sheep, and it's something we'll see very specifically Jesus do with his various miracles in the New Testament accounts. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. That's certainly something that Christ does for us as he gives us faith, strengthens that faith daily through word and sacrament, encouraging us, building us up that we would be able to endure whatever this world might throw at us. Not to say we're going to succeed and thrive, but that Christ will provide. And that even if this world should kill us, as it has many Christians in the last 2,000 years, Christ will raise us. We may not thrive now, but we will be redeemed, restored, raised from the dead, and we will live forever. Not everyone will see that. Better to be killed for our faith in Christ now and live forever than to have no faith now and perish forever. And that then is the judgment at the end of the paragraph that we read, the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. I have to pause on that last phrase and injustice, all lumped together as one word, is a phrase of its own. But this is two words, the preposition in with the noun justice. So he will destroy them because they are fat and strong. That's a reference to their abuse of others and their life of ease and comfort. I'm going to save and hold off on some of that for later, though, because he gets a little more specific with this judgment in the next two paragraphs. He will feed them with justice. That is, he will give to them what they have earned. And the only thing that our sins earn is death. Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Romans 3.23 shares with us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If left to simply our own devices, if left to our own works, to be able to come before the holy God on the last day and say, look how great I did. Look at all the good works that I did. 
If we have not Christ, that response of pride and boasting will be met with destruction. And if we have Christ, we won't be pointing to the good works we did. We'll be pointing to his good works that he did on our behalf. All right, verses 17 through 19, our second paragraph. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? and drink of clear water, that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet, and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Notice again the use of verbs, and who is the subject of such verbs. This paragraph is a little lighter with the Lord. He is the subject only of one verb, and it's right there in verse 17, I judge. The people are five times the subject of the verb. In three cases, even though, again, active verbs, we would describe this as the people's passive reception of what God has given, that he has placed them in the promised land on the mountains of Israel. He has given them the food to eat, and then they go and they eat it. So that idea is used three times, and then twice when the sheep are active and actually doing their own thing for themselves, not as a reception of what God has given, it's evil. So is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? So feed, you feeding, that's a reception of God's gift. That you must tread down. And there's the active verb for the sheep that is unique to the sheep and not based on what God has done. And the drink thing mirrors it and just repeats that, that same kind of language. So the, the noticeable thing here is who is God speaking to? Verse 17, as for you, my flock. He's speaking to his own flock. He is acknowledging in this that there are those among his flock who are fat and strong who have abused others and live a life of comfort and ease, and he is going to destroy them. He is going to bring judgment upon them. And again, verse 18 and 19 gives us a little of the language of why. So God has given them his good gifts. And instead of simply receiving those good gifts and enjoying them and allowing others to also enjoy them, They take what they can for themselves and they destroy the rest. I mean, the picture here is of a crazed sheep that after eating some grass just goes on a rampage, running around on perhaps a muddy day so it tears everything up uh, and the grass is destroyed. Or with the water, uh, gets down into the water and stamps around and stirs up all the dirt so that it turns into just a, a mud puddle instead of calm water to drink. So those who stir up trouble, those who would point people not to the Redeemer, not to the shepherd, but instead to their own works. This is something Paul fights with in the New Testament and the epistles quite frequently as every time he, I can't say every time, but probably close to, if not every time, he went from one village to another on his missionary journeys. There were groups of Jews who followed him along, 
And they would come into that newly planted church and say, if you really want to follow God, you have to keep the Old Testament laws. They wouldn't have said Old Testament laws. You have to keep the laws that are found in the Law and the Prophets in Holy Scripture. And so they would lay on these sheep a new burden. Instead of the sheep being able to all simply receive together, the waters were muddied, the grass, the good feed of word and sacrament were destroyed, and the people were convinced that they had to be circumcised. They were convinced they had to keep the Sabbath and the new moons, or they weren't saved. Their faith was harmed. So stealing from the people, who might we argue would fit this description? Hard to say, perhaps within the context of those who returned from their exile. It is most certainly those, again, who are seeking to destroy faith or, or point people to something other than God. So I can recognize when they came out of the exile, 538, when Cyrus sent them home, they were slow to go. They didn't return back to Judah. They didn't return back to Jerusalem right away. They didn't rebuild the temple, certainly, for many years. It's not going to be finished until it's estimated to be 515 B.C. Again, 538 is when they were sent home. 23 years to build the house of God where you could receive the forgiveness of sins? This is why Zechariah and Haggai the prophets are called. This is what you'll find in the book of Ezra this struggle. So there were leaders among the people who didn't lead them to the Lord. They led them to just their own idols. The slow return would be the idol of fear. Or again, comfort and ease in Babylon and not wanting to go back to the land God had promised to his people. And then once they're back, well, they built their own homes. So their own desire for shelter and comfort and ease but again left God's house unbuilt. So we can see some of that there. It's easier perhaps for us to see in the New Testament because these people are pointed out by Jesus himself very specifically, as they will be in the Gospel reading today. The Pharisees fit this description, that they would, instead of receiving the good gifts God gives and allowing the other sheep to receive it too, they trampled it down. They created new laws for people to follow. They did not point to the Messiah when the Messiah came, at least not all of them. We know Nicodemus to be a Pharisee. He would be an example of one that would not fit this judgment description because he trusted in Christ. He's one of the sheep, and not the fat ones. (laughs) He's, He's one of the sheep that have ultimately ended up being abused and battered by the others. I can only imagine the Pharisees turning on him because of his faith. All right, so the Sadducees, priests, Pharisees of the New Testament would likely fit this picture. Our last paragraph, verses 20 to 24. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh to them, Behold I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. 
and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. So our verb count, I counted 12 verbs slash subjects here, and nine of them are God. Three of them are the people. And in this case, all three of the ones of the people are once again things that God has not given. They are things of evil. So they have pushed and shoved. They have thrusted their horns. They have scattered one another abroad. It's the destruction brought about by sin. So in the fullness of her text, we have, what's that? 17, 26 times that God is the subject of the verb. The doer, the redeemer, the sanctifier. And then 10 times that it's the people. Five of those times, it is the people's response to what God has given. So he's given them the pasture to eat, and so they eat. Five times, it's the people responding in a way that the Lord has not given, and then it is their own evil ways of destruction. So, worth pointing out again again here, because it, it just stands out. It jumps right off the page. Again, as we started with in verse 11, there's a triple emphasis. I, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean. Reminds me of Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, where Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats as a commentary on the day of judgment. And this picture is very much similar, and this would also again fit with the, the theme that we have coming in our gospel text of the lost sheep. So we have the fat sheep are those, again, who have abused their role, who have harmed others, whereas the lean sheep are the ones who have been pushed around. That connects to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And how great is that, that we get to inherit the earth? I mean, look at this text and how much they have inherited. They have been given the promised land, they've been given all that they need to survive in this world, God provides for them. To be meek is not simply to be weak as some would define it. To be meek is to, to not exercise power. So a meek person might have the ability to, to fight back, to, to harm someone else who is already harming them. The meek person would not. The meek person would notice the ability that they have to, to fight back and instead forgive and instead show mercy. So they're pushed around by this world, but again, raised by Christ. Look at the life of the apostles. Look at the life of Jesus himself. See the meekness of Christ's journey to the cross. He is God in the flesh. He could have done what his disciples wanted him to do. He could have shown himself, revealed himself to be this grand being who then smote the Roman Empire. But instead he was meek. He had the power to fight back and he didn't. And when his disciples started to, Peter drew the sword. He told him to put the sword away that those who lived by the sword would die by the sword. Instead, blessed are the meek they shall inherit the earth. So the judgment coming on these fat sheep who have pushed 
and shoved and, and thrusted and scattered. So the, the picture here is just, again, that, that crazed sheep that fights all the other sheep in the flock. You might think of the ram with the picture of the horns here knocking the other sheep around until the other sheep have had enough and they just, they leave. They scatter. They flee from the one who has harmed them. God is going to judge those. He's going to destroy those. But, verse 22, he will rescue his flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I'd mentioned before we were certainly going to push with this text towards the last day, towards paradise. And verse 22 undoubtedly does. When they returned from Babylon to Judah and Jerusalem, they had enemies. They were a prey. And they remained so. They were under Persian authority at the time, and there were people, governors around, who didn't want to see the temple rebuilt and and pushed against it. When they started rebuilding the walls, there was opposition to that as well. Then you get Greece coming in, and then you have Rome coming in. Uh, You've got uh, Antiochus uh, in the in-between, the intertestamental period that does quite a bit of harm to them. You come to the New Testament, again, you have what they suffer under the Pharisees, the Pharisaical rule, but you also have um, the oppression under Rome, which is why they cry out. It's, again, what they expect Jesus to do is to fight for them and destroy Rome. And let's talk about the Christian church ever since. What happened to the apostles? As far as we know, only John wasn't martyred. And it wasn't for a lack of trying. The emperor tried to boil him in oil alive. And he lived. So recognizing that he couldn't kill him, he exiled him to Patmos. And it's not until that emperor dies that he's brought back from that exile. The Christian life is not one of comfort and ease. It is a life lived in meekness where we love and serve our neighbor, and instead of fighting back for ourselves and claiming our rights, instead we show meekness. We care for one another, and we care for those around us so that they can see the love of Christ, that they hear that good news, that Christ has also forgiven them, that Christ has also redeemed them from sin, death, and the devil, and that they too can live forever. So God will judge between the sheep and the sheep. He will set up over us one shepherd, his servant David. This is the John 10 text, that Jesus is our good shepherd. Uh, This is the 2 Samuel 7 promise that one of David's descendants, his offspring, would sit on his throne in Jerusalem forever, and he shall feed them. This is the Lord's Supper. John 6, verse 53, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That text continues very strongly. But Jesus gives us himself. Jesus feeds us himself. And if eating, if not eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood means you have no life in you, then the opposite is also the case, that eating his flesh, and drinking his blood means you have life in you because he has given it. And we, again, simply, we receive it, we rejoice in it. So God is our shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. 
He maketh us to lie down in green pastures as he brings us, gathers us together into his church where he feeds us with his word, with his sacrament, his very own body and blood as he guides us home to the promised land that he has promised to us, a new heaven and a new earth, a paradise. Our epistle reading as we gather together, again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, optional, your pastor may include verses 5 through 11, Uh, the regular reading of it, though, is verses 12 to 17, so you might have 5 through 17 or 12 through 17. For a little context here, as this is our first time in the lectionary, the three-year lectionary of going through 1 Timothy together. In fact, we're going to go through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, not in their fullness, but over the next several weeks leading up to our celebration of the Reformation, which puts an end to the season of Pentecost as well, or just about does. There's a couple weeks that are in there in between All Saints Day and the start of Advent, the start of a new church year, which would bring us back to year A in our rotation. So context, Timothy. Timothy was at one point, obviously a young man uh, that Paul met on his missionary journeys. I cannot say for certain if Paul is the one who directly shared Jesus Christ with Timothy on his first missionary journeys. He went about uh, the cities of Lystra and Derby, Iconium, and so forth. That's the region in Galatia where Paul finds Timothy. And Paul has planted on that first missionary journey, he's planted churches in those cities. And Paul's, sorry, Timothy's mother and grandmother are a part of that community of faith. They are a part of the church. They're a part of uh, this Christian faith. And so as they They are Christians. They also are teaching Timothy, their grandson or son, about Christ. So again, it could be that Paul himself is the one who first shared Jesus with Timothy, or it could be that Timothy learned of it from his mother and grandmother, as Paul very specifically will talk about in his epistle here. And again, then Timothy, as he he grows in his faith, He does eventually become a partner of Paul's in the missionary journeys that are to come. Verse 3, which we don't have today, would have indicated that Paul has asked Timothy to remain in Ephesus, so he's going to serve there as pastor. This is known as one of the pastoral epistles. 1 and 2 Timothy, as well as Titus, are the three pastoral epistles, so letters written to pastors. Timothy serving in Ephesus. He is known traditionally as the first bishop of Ephesus, and I do not know, I don't know how well church tradition or history records this, the idea of how how long then Timothy was in Ephesus. Did he remain there for his rest of his life? It certainly appears from Paul's letters to him that at some point Timothy revisited with Paul, uh, but maybe it was just a visit and then he went back. It's hard to say for certain, but again, we view him as the first bishop of Ephesus, and it is traditionally held that he was martyred there in 97 AD, so a good 30 plus years after this is written, sometime in the 60s, Paul writes this to him. He's martyred in 97 because he was preaching Christ during this procession for a goddess, the goddess Diana, so a pagan goddess 
basically a festival, a parade of some sort, and he seeks to interrupt it to preach about the true God, Jesus Christ. And at the age of 80, as it's held, they show him no mercy. They stone him and beat him to death. But Timothy has the crown of life, and we will see him in paradise someday. Let's do the optional text first, and then double back and do the rest. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So there's our optional verses 5 through 11 for the weekend. And we start with this aim of our charge being love. Our charge, as Paul is writing a pastoral epistle to a fellow pastor of the church, the charge of those who would lead the church is to love the church. And not a forced love. This is not to to love them because you have to. That would be to make a law of it, right? But instead, to love them because of faith. In faith, I know that God has created his people. In faith, I know he has given me that gift. In faith, I know that the people that gather around me here at St. Matthew, as I serve this congregation, that they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know I have been called to love them and serve them. And so to do that with a pure heart, not with greed or, or hope of gain to be a fat sheep from our Old Testament reading, and with a good conscience, so not to go about wronging them uh, that I would then have to, to bear that guilt. It's not to say I won't. I, I'm a sinner as well. Um, but the charge is to love the people. Paul then makes note that there are those who don't. This, again, would be the same as the Old Testament picture, the the fat sheep versus the lean sheep. Here we have certain persons, and he doesn't identify them. Who are they in Ephesus that he's warning Timothy of here? By swerving from these, by swerving from having a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith that brings about love for their neighbor, they've wandered away. They're having vain discussions. So they're talking about things that don't matter. They're talking about things that don't build up the faith of the Christian, but are instead a distraction. That don't point to Jesus, but point to something else, whether it's the law, which is likely for the context here, or if it's the world. Oh, let's talk about the Roman Colosseum. Did you see the Gladiator Games last weekend? Oh, I wish I could go and see the games. 
Sounds like our conversations today, doesn't it? How often our conversations today do not focus on Christ or the gifts that he gives, but the things of this world. Whether it's sports or the weather. Typically these days, it's what have you been watching on TikTok? We're distracted quite easily. We have many vain discussions, and we don't even know the people we attend church with. I mean, think about it. How many of you know the sins that your neighbor struggles with? The person who sits next to you in church on Sunday morning. Do you know what temptations the devil uses to harm them? Do you know how to pray for them? Do you know how to come alongside them and bear their burden? Do you know how to assist them as they walk in the light of Christ? And most of the time today, we don't. Most of us, I think it's fair to say, in American Christianity, most of us could not make the case of a single one of our fellow people in the church. And harshly, that's probably even true in our marriages, that we could not say that even of our spouse. What do they struggle with? Because again, we are so distracted, we don't know each other anymore. Vain discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying or the things about which they assert. So they, they talk of things, but they're empty. So they might point you to the temple and to the sacrifices and say, you need to bring your ox or your bull or your ram or your goat. You need to bring this forward to the temple, to the altar, to be forgiven of your sin. They make confident assertions but they're wrong because they don't know what they're talking about. Jesus is the temple. It is in Christ alone that we have the forgiveness of sins, and he is the once and for all sacrifice for those sins. If you think you have to do something else, whatever it is, if it's Jesus and I, I have to bring a sacrifice, I have to do so many good works, I have to try hard enough. Whatever your Jesus and is, you're saying Jesus isn't good enough. Jesus is the Savior, not me, not you, no one else. So from this, certainly sounds like the Judaizers that Paul's talking about, those who chased him around on his journeys and constantly telling the new churches that they had to fulfill all the Old Testament law, which is going to bring us to the second part of this paragraph. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good. It's from God. It is a good gift that God gave to his people. It shows us what he wants of us. It shows us what a, a perfect life in this place would look like. I use this analogy all the time, I know, but imagine a city, a place where you could live, where the law of God was obeyed perfectly. No one killed, no one lied, no one ruined your reputation, no one, no one stole, no one committed adultery, sleeping with your wife. None of these things happened. That's a good place to be. It's paradise, really. We won't see that outside of paradise, but it, the law of God is good if we use it lawfully, 
the wrong use of the law is to use it for seeking your own salvation. That if I keep the law, God will favor me. If I keep the law perfectly, God will welcome me into heaven. And Paul talks about this. If, if you're, This is Galatians. If, if you're going to give up the gospel, if you're going to say that you must be circumcised, then you are obligated to keep the entire law. If you think you have to do something to be saved, you have to do it all. Because you're saying what Christ did for you wasn't good enough. I have to do something. It's Jesus' hand. So again, the Judaizers make perfect sense to be who he's discussing here, even though they are not called out by by such a title. Uh, Judaizers or the circumcision party, as the scriptures do make both references. Instead, understanding the law is not laid down for the just, so it's not laid down for the perfect, of which there are none. There was just one, Jesus Christ himself. The law is laid down instead for the lawless, the disobedient, which would be all of us, all the rest. And so you have a list, yes, of sins, ungodly and sinners. So those who reject God, those who, who would live lives their own way instead of his way, uh, sin, rebelling against God, focusing on the self, unholy, imperfect, not keeping all of God's law, profane, I might get the idea of uncleanness, those who strike their fathers and mothers, breaking the fourth commandment. The death penalty was held in the Old Testament for those who committed that sin. For murderers, those who kill others, or in Jesus' description in the Sermon on the Mount, those who even hate or insult others. The sexually immoral, so Six Commandment stuff, which includes men who practice homosexuality. Adultery is in view. Enslavers, so those who would seek to bind those who are free. Liars. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus identifies Satan as the father of all lies. And Jesus is the God of truth. So if you are a liar, you are not of Jesus, you are of Satan. Yes, that includes white lies. God is the God of truth. Perjurers. So that takes the lying quite a bit more specifically as you get into swearing falsely. And then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. All of these things, all this list of sins, and we are all in it. None of us are above it. None of us are exempt from it. The law is for us. And so what does the law do? The law, verse 11, is good in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Glorious to lift one up that they might be seen. So the law makes us to see God. The law makes us to see our need for God. Another way to put this, the law shows us our need for our Savior. If you have a lion, big feisty teeth, and it bites into you, it tears your flesh, the gospel is that healing. It restores you. But if the law has no teeth, if you take the teeth off the lion, you no longer need to be healed. Or at least you no longer see your need for healing. The gospel is no longer sweet to you. If we did not have the law, we would not know of our need for Christ. 
It isn't that we wouldn't need Christ, it's just that we wouldn't recognize it. So the law definitely shows us our need for our Savior, shows us our sin. That's one of three uses. We talk about the three functions of the law, oftentimes in the church. Uh, curb, mirror, guide. So the first use, the curb, like a, a curb on the side of the road is meant to keep the vehicle on. So you might, you might swerve a little bit from time to time. None of us are perfect drivers staying inside both lines perfectly. But the curb keeps you in check. If you hit the curb, you bounce back. Or if you were drowsy, you, you woke up a little bit to, to drive better again. It stops you from careening off the road into somebody's living room where you could do far greater damage. So the law does for us. The law, you shall not murder, is a curb to my sin. I might get angry with my, I don't have a brother, but my brother in Christ, I might get angry with him. But instead of allowing that to compound and build and build until the point where I stab him, the law curbs me from that to know that murder is wrong. It doesn't prevent it all the time. Again, the curb does not prevent all cars from going off the road, but it's a help. Then the mirror, when you look in the mirror in the morning, it shows you your imperfections. The law shows us our imperfections, where we have fallen short, our need for a savior. That's the law kills use that most often you will hear Lutherans discuss. And then the third use, the guide, like a mountain guide. If you're going to climb Everest, you need a guide to show you the way. And so the law shows us the way. It shows us how to live in this world. It shows us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. Again, we don't do so perfectly. But I know it's loving my neighbor when I don't covet what they have, when I don't try to take what is theirs, when I don't cheat with my neighbor's wife. All these things are loving my neighbor. It's God showing me how to do that. All right, that's our optional part of the text. Here is the text that all of our three-year lectionary churches will be reading, verses 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It sounds like a conclusion to a letter, doesn't it? The way it builds up to that final point, and as we do with so many of our church prayers, ends with that praise of the Lord um, as the one who lives forever and ever. Amen. It sounds like a conclusion, and if we're going to make it such, it is the conclusion of the greeting of this letter, because there's a whole lot of epistle yet to come. Uh, we're only in chapter 1, and it's a six-chapter letter that he writes to Timothy. So I thank him, that is God, who has given me strength. 
right? God is the one who builds us up. He is the one who's given us that faith. He has given him strength, Christ Jesus. So very specifically, the second person of the Trinity, the referent here, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. So God, Jesus, judged Paul faithful even when he wasn't. This is the road to Damascus here that Paul is referencing, the conversion that he received, that even while he was persecuting the church, seeking to go to Damascus to arrest Christians in hopes that they would be executed when brought back, and Jesus Jesus judges him faithful and comes to him, reveals himself to him. Paul sees the risen Christ and is given direct revelation from Jesus that he is to be his servant. Jesus called a dark man. And he welcomed him into the light to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. A little First Peter 2 there. Blaspheme, so he spoke against God. Persecute, he killed Christians or sought to kill Christians. Insolent opponent, he was greatly opposed to the gospel and sought to overthrow it. But instead he received mercy. He had acted in unbelief. That's not an excuse. We were all there. Every single last one of us was in unbelief, and God has rescued us. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who forgives your sins, it's because he's rescued you. It's because he judged you faithful and appointed you to his service. Now, not in the same way as he did for Paul, Paul's appointing is certainly unique, and he is rendered an apostle because of it. We are disciples, and we too have been given work to do. Because the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, and again for us all. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not because of what we did, we were unbelievers. Opponents, those seeking to strip down the gospel and live life however we wanted. But God's love for us, his mercy for us abounded so richly, overflowing, pouring out upon us. It's a beautiful picture. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul says something like that a few times. So here's that saying that we should accept and trust. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul recognizes again his direct opposition to the church, what he has done, who he's wronged. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to save us. And Paul lifts himself up as being the foremost of sinners, the darkest of the dark. 
the argument here, if, if God can save even Paul, he can save us. He can save the others. He can save me. How great is the mercy. How great is the forgiveness of God that he could take this man who was hardened against him, a great enemy who sought to kill his people, that he could turn even him into a, a light to the world, proclaiming his goodness. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So that's what I was just mentioning there. The people marveled when they heard Paul was preaching about the one that he had persecuted. What happened? What changed? Why did he go from seeking to kill them to being one of them? The Lord used that to bring many to faith. He worked through Paul, and we know Paul to be the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church. And then the doxology of this, again, greeting, the king of ages, so Jesus of the ages, so all time, immortal, can't be killed. He's risen from the dead, invisible, in this case unseen by our naked eye, but then no less present, no less there. Only God be honor so that we would look to him with respect and honor and glory. And we would lift him up, that we would look to him and so would others. Today our final reading comes from Luke's gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Just contextually speaking, this section from Luke 9 until 19 is not chronologically in order per se, so it's hard to know the context fully. In 9 verse 53, Jesus has turned his face, set his face to go to Jerusalem where he will die on the cross to forgive us for our sins. In chapter 19, he reaches Jerusalem with the triumphal entry. The stuff in between focuses primarily on what Jesus teaches. So rather than being on Monday he did this, on Tuesday he did this, and Wednesday he did this, it's organized around his teaching so that we can follow and learn ourselves. So here we go. Verse 1 and 2 will give us as much of the context here as we can. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Notice these two classes. Tax collectors, sinners. The Pharisees despise them both. But notice how they distinguish them. So sinners is a, a catch-all term for the, this despised group of people. Uh, prostitutes would fit into such a thing. Um, but anyone who didn't, anyone whom the Pharisees judged as not keeping the law, as not worthy. That's this phrase. I'm not saying that's the normal word for sinner. A sinner is someone who disobeys the Lord. But that's a phrase for them. And then tax collector. So they put the the prostitute and the tax collector in the same category, side by side. That's how much the tax collectors were hated by the Jews. Uh, Those who 
some of them even from their own people, Jews who were employed by the Roman Empire to collect taxes in that region. It wasn't always that way necessarily, but often it was. Matthew does this, one of the disciples that Jesus calls. They so despise them for taking their money. Many Christians today quite despise the IRS for the same reason. So anyway, these are the worst of the worst in the minds of the Pharisees. How could Jesus possibly receive them? How could he eat with them? We see multiple times Jesus going into homes in the gospel accounts and and having meals with, with people like this. So the Pharisees and the scribes. Pharisees are one particular religious group. I guess you could say really the scribes are as well. The scribes are those who maintain the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Uh, They copy, they teach. The the Pharisees, almost like a religious social club, but they, they dressed different than the people. They were looked up to by the people because of their great piety and their attempts to keep the law of God. And so they're upset with Jesus. Going back to our Old Testament, the connection to the Old Testament text is that these are the fat sheep. Here they are, right there, amongst God's people, supposed to be God's people, and yet, instead of simply receiving the gifts that Jesus comes to bring, enjoying those gifts, and allowing others to receive them too, look at what they're doing. They're pushing, shoving, they're scattering the church. They're dividing, they're harming. All right, Jesus is going to tell, as far as our text is concerned, two parables, but it's actually three. He's going to keep going in Luke chapter 15 with what we know of as the parable of the prodigal son. And truthfully, then, also the parable of the dishonest manager would follow right up on that one. So he keeps going. But I don't want to drop off the parable of the prodigal son from our understanding of this, even though it's not part of our text today. We had it back in the season of Lent, the fourth Sunday in Lent. We had verses 1 through 3, and then we skipped down to 11 to pick up a parable of prodigal son. So we continue here with verses 3 through 7, which is the parable of the lost sheep. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus teaching in parables, using stories in order to illustrate a point, a teaching point for the people to learn. And these, these three parables go together very, very well. And again, it's Jesus, he's teaching, it's intentional. He starts with the idea of a shepherd. Now, 99, 100 sheep, probably a little more than a shepherd would handle himself. Uh, There may indeed be two or three shepherds over a flock of such a size. That 
<laughs> kind of gets at the point that some ask about, well, what happens to the 99 sheep? What if they wander away while the shepherd is gone finding the one? Oh, if he's got one or two other shepherds he's leaving those sheep with. But it's a story. Don't overanalyze a parable. It's part of the idea of it being a story. If it were straightforward, the full thing, then it wouldn't be a parable. It would just be the reality. So he's, we don't pick every point apart in a parable. One of the sheep has gone astray. And the shepherd goes until he finds it. Now notice the phrasing of the parable though. What man of you? He's inviting the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling, who are upset with him for how he's behaving and who he's keeping company with. He's inviting them to consider themselves in this parable. Imagine that you have a hundred sheep and one leaves, one disappears. What would you do? Would you just let the sheep go? Would you not care? Or would you go after the sheep? The intent would be for the men to realize and think, yeah, I'd go after the lost sheep. Again, especially if we're thinking that there's other shepherds at hand to continue to care for the 99. I would go and seek that sheep, and I would try to find it. Now, in the big picture, this is us. That Jesus is the good shepherd, John chapter 10, and that we are the sheep who have wandered astray. That's what sin is, that we have rebelled against God, and we have done so even from inside the womb. In sin did my mother conceive me, says King David in Psalm 51, verse 5. And yet Jesus has come to us. He has come to find us, his lost sheep, and to bring us home, to restore us to our Heavenly Father, to give us peace and a promise of a life everlasting. And so having found us, Jesus rejoices, and he tells us this beautiful line that there is much rejoicing. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, there, in fairness here, there aren't 99 righteous persons even in the history of this creation. How many have been righteous? Only one. The one speaking, Jesus Christ, he is the only righteous one that there has been. And so there is rejoicing in heaven over each and every one of us sinners who have been redeemed by the Lord. I remember with this, and maybe a good connection would be to think of Abraham in Genesis 18 as he tries to barter with God and save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What if there are 50 righteous persons there? What if there are five less than 50, just 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? He keeps bartering with the Lord, but there aren't enough righteous people for it to be spared. Even Lot truly isn't righteous. God, in his love of Abraham, will send angels into Sodom to rescue Lot, to bring him out from there. But the cities themselves are destroyed. Then we get a second parable right on top of it, follows up, same, really the same exact meaning, 
verses 8 through 10. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Not much to say about this second parable, the parable of the coin, the lost coin, because it's the same. You sub out the shepherd for this woman, you sub out the sheep for the coin. She searches diligently, cleaning her house until she finds it. And when she does, she celebrates. It was lost, but now is found. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, and that again is each and every one of us. A couple other thoughts on these two parables here before I use the third to tie it all together. The first would be the idea of, back in the the parable of the lost sheep, the picture of the shepherd, Jesus, carrying the sheep on his shoulders. That has been a very common artistic painting uh, in the history of the church. And then also, really, how about this for both of these? When was the last time we, through a celebration, had a party when a sinner repented? I mean, even even the celebrations of the church when we baptize someone, oftentimes it, it goes almost unnoticed. It ends up becoming just another thing we do. Or when a sinner confesses sin, all these kinds of illustrations. What if we lived this out? What if we actually celebrated and made a big deal out of the things of faith? But let me tie it together with the parable of the prodigal son, which is the third account that comes after this, where the the younger son, uh, just brief summary because I'm fairly confident most of the listeners know this parable. The younger son has run away, having taken his father's goods, Father, you might as well be dead. Give me my inheritance now. He runs out of wealth, but he comes home. And when he comes home, instead of being angry, the father welcomes him home. The father rejoices, and the father throws a party for his son, kills the fattened calf, dresses him in the best attire that he can, and the older brother is left outside, outside the party, angry with his father. The Pharisees are the older brother. The sinners and the tax collectors of verse 1 are the younger brother. In fairness, any one Christian who has repented, any of the ones from verse 7 and verse 10, those that the angels have rejoiced over, we are the younger brother. The Pharisees and the scribes are the older brother in the parable. Jesus has dined with the sinners. He, He parties. He rejoices that they've been found. And the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is eating with them, that Jesus is celebrating with them. He has called them out of darkness into light. And this is a good thing. And the parable of the prodigal son ends open-endedly as an invitation for the Pharisees and the scribes to repent and join the party where there will be much rejoicing in heaven. So hopefully you can see how all three of these parables fit so nicely together as Jesus uses them to teach the Pharisees that these were once lost, 
but now are found. Amen.